Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear mother, he said, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheapest wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you again. These beautiful songs we've been singing. more wonderfully focused our attention between these songs. It's just a beautiful time being reminded of great truths together. In thinking of Jesus as our shepherd, I've not so much taken John 10 or something and looked at each verse describing a shepherd, but looking more at how he did shepherd people and how he wants to shepherd us. Let's just pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Lord, we're thrilled with those words in the Old Testament, I will come down, I will be your shepherd. And Lord Jesus, thank you for all of your shepherding of our lives. Thank you for the joy of these great songs we've been singing, Lord. Some of them familiar, some new to us, but full of truth. Lord, we're so grateful for things we can sing out, sing out loud. We believe you, we trust you, that you've won our affection and you've won our confidence, Father. Father, we, we, we just come now, Lord, with your word open before us, and we thank you for the possibility now of our meeting with you. And we we come, Father, Lord, because we need you, and we thank you your ear is open to us. And we ask you now, Father, for the Holy Spirit to rest upon us, to lead us into truth. Lord, that was your promise. He will lead you into truth. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Lead us into truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some weeks ago, uh, one of the elders of the church in Brighton, where I've been for some 30 years, he, uh, he, he, his name is Steve, and he turned up at uh, church with his wife and family, and um, he, he took his place up in the bleachers with a, a rounded area, and he sat there, and uh, he opened the... Uh, the kind of news sheet that you get in so many churches, and we have. And uh, he sat there and he opened the news sheet to see what was happening this week. And as he turned over the page, he read, Today, Steve is preaching at Heathfield Church. <laughs> Please pray for him. You <laughs> had this shock, shock and alarm. Said goodbye to his wife, rushed out of the church, got his car, and drove. Uh, the 25 miles or so <laughs> to Heathfield. <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, I remember once when I was preaching 
at the Stonely Bible Week, which was a wonderful uh, experience. We ran it for some 10 years, and to be honest, in the end, there were some thousands of people. I remember one evening, and uh, the worship had taken place. The first part of the meeting had concluded. My friend was giving the announcements, and I was to speak in the moment in the second part of a three-part series. And uh, uh, and I was at the back of a very large platform, and just sitting, and I thought, well, I'll just lastly look at my notes just while you're giving the notices, and I opened my Bible, and look for the notes. Uh, there were last night's notes, but not tonight's notes. I looked out at these thousands of people and I thought, Father, what do I do? And uh, I, I mean, there was no alternative. I, I just, uh, he, he's speaking and I just come off the platform. I slept myself out and I ran across this uh, agricultural showground up to where I think as well. People, you know, with ladies with little babies in their bodies. I got my notes and I got back and, uh, and I'd forgotten there was one extra item which I'd completely forgotten. Thank you, Jesus. And it was just sort of concluding as I slipped back onto the platform and uh, took my place. <laughs> now, why am I telling silly stories? Well, they're stories about a kind of a tragedy that nearly happened. And uh, this, is, this is a story about a tragedy that nearly happened. There's a problem. Uh, at the moment, nobody knows about it. It's kind of under the surface. Uh, we're all having a super party. It's a wedding party. Everybody's enjoying themselves. But just under the surface, there's a crisis. And uh, there's no wine. We're running out. Nobody knows. And uh, we can come to a conference like this, and we feel, I'm running out. Nobody knows yet. Nobody knows yet. Maybe like these people spoken to a close friend. Someone had whispered to Mary, we're running out. We haven't got it. And we can feel that in ministry. We can feel it really doesn't have to be wine. It could be energy. It can be, I haven't got what it takes. It can be, why did I step into this anyway? And at the moment, everyone's happy. No one knows there's a problem. It's kind of under the surface. But we're living with a crisis that's about to break. It's going to be shame. It's going to be pain. It's going to be, yeah, the day the wedding found up. Uh, Cana would have been a tiny village. I've only been to Israel twice in my life. I went once to Cana and sort of bustling to a town now, but I guess then a tiny village. And I guess that a wedding would have been probably something all the village would have got caught up in. And uh, it would be remembered forever as the one where they shamed us. They ran out of wine. And uh, here's a story where Jesus, the shepherd, is going to come on the scene and transform. He's going to come and do something quite glorious. But I want us to see how he did it, what he did. And let's see why Paul, uh, Peter, John has recorded these things. <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we'll go there in the end. Uh, <laughs> for our encouragement, and, and it's interesting how, how at the end of his um, uh, gospel, John writes the reason that he selected these signs. He said uh, in, in John 20 and verse 31, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So John has selected the material. So much he could be, so much could be written. He's seen so many breathtaking things. He's just selected. And it says these signs, and you know, seven of uh, Jesus' great remarkable miracles are called signs in John's Gospel. Uniquely in John's Gospel, they're called signs. They point to something else. Uh, you know, this blind man is healed. I'm the light of the world. You know, he gives them bread to eat. I am the bread of life. And the certain, certain miracles and signs, uh, they're pointing to something more than they do. And this is his first sign. This is the first demonstration of the glory of God 
in the midst of his people. The first time the shepherd steps forth in such a victorious, triumphant, and remarkable way. And it's strange, really, the way it happened. So that's John kind of wears his heart on his sleeve, and this is why I'm writing this. I'm writing with purpose. I'm writing with a, a desire. My, my reason for writing is that you might have faith. And that you might have faith in him. And that having faith, you have life. It's different to knowing Julius Caesar lived or Napoleon. When you believe in Jesus, something happens. You have life. So he's writing with dynamic purpose. He's selecting his material under the Spirit's guidance that we might understand about God through his son. So here we are. Let's look at the story. We're at a wedding, and uh, Jesus is happy to be at a party. I hope we have that kind of Jesus. I hope we don't have a Jesus that just turns up in our church on Sunday mornings and frowns about what happened on Saturday or is uncomfortable. He, he came, not that we have, might have in meetings, have them abundantly. He came that we might have life <laughs> and have them abundantly. And he, and Jesus was happy to invade a party. And let's remember that a party, who's the focus of, opinion, uh, of uh, everybody's eye is on the bride and groom. Jesus is happy to be at a party where he's not the center. He's happy to be there. He's happy to do his first sign at a party. Satan had other ideas. Satan came to him in the wilderness and said, why don't you hurl yourself down from the temple? You do something religious, do something amazing. Demonstrate. And Jesus said, no, I'd rather do it at a party. I'd rather be in people's lives. I'd rather be right among people. Uh, and he refused Satan's agenda. He had his own agenda. He was happy to be at a party. I've never been to a Jewish party. I've never been to a Jewish wedding. Uh, but I guess he wouldn't have been a wallflower, you know, looking on. I've seen the pictures of these guys with their arms around one another, all dancing. And uh, I'm sure Jesus would have been in the party. And uh, I just want us to catch a glimpse of, of this real man, this real... I mean, the wonder of the incarnation never ceases to amaze me. No wonder Paul writes, great is the mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. And Jesus came to this party and was among people. He was there. He was present. I believe he would have been enjoying the party. He would have been part of the situation. Good for us to uh, just ponder that, be aware of that. And then also just remember, without spending too much time on it, but it's relevant to our day and generation, he was happy to be at a wedding party. Uh, and often at weddings you hear the stated that Jesus, by his presence at the wedding of Cana, uh, kind of endorsed marriage and, and, and was there. And you know, marriage is going out of date in our country. I saw some old friends of mine a little while back took my daughter along with me to meet some of my BC friends, the gang of guys I used to go around with when I was a teenager. And uh, I just... On a whim, I just drove to that and went. I hadn't seen him for years. And uh, asking questions and showed some photos. And uh, so he said, oh, so all your kids got married? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, none of us did. They just moved in. They just kind of shacked up, as he put it. They just moved in. And uh, marriage is pretty unpopular. People don't bother with it now. But it's good for us to say, no, Jesus was happy to endorse marriage. God is for covenant love. God is for those words, you know, forsaking all others, I give myself. And we shouldn't perhaps be surprised when we think, yeah, that's why, why did he do his first sign of a marriage? Well, if you look at Genesis and you look at Revelation, where does it begin? Where does it end? It starts with a marriage, it ends with the great wedding supper, the marriage of the Lamb. Marriage is somehow interprets God's compassion and passion for his bride. It's the story, it's the whole story, the big meta-narrative. He's going to have a great, wonderful celebration. So maybe this is an ideal place for him to do his first sign. It's a wedding. He's speaking of what's to come, the glory of Christ, the marriage, the joining forever to the Lord. Yeah, he's happy to do his first sign at a wedding. He's happy to endorse marriage. He's happy, and we should be happy to affirm marriage, to proclaim it in our generation. Jesus would have us do that. 
But it's into that scene that we begin to see something unexpected happen. Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And it's the response that's strange. Jesus says to her, woman, now if you have the NIV, you'll have dear written in there. But uh, if you have a pen, you can cross it out, because it, <laughs> it just ain't in the text. It's just gune, woman. He just speaks to her, woman, which is kind of a bit jarring, really. And I guess it's because it's jarring that the translators wrote in dear, because it's a bit strange, so we've got to change it. No, he just said, woman. Same way he spoke to the woman at the well in John 4. Now, not to overstate it, you'll find that when he's hanging on the cross, and how can he think of anything else when he was hanging on the cross? He looks down at Mary and says, Woman, behold your son. And speaks to John about Mary. So one doesn't want to overstate it, but it's a funny way to talk to your mother. Woman. And, uh, and to be honest, if that's strong, <laughs> it's the next phrase that is even more so. What have I got to do with you? NIV, why do you involve me? What do I have to do with you in this NASB that I'm reading from? Apparently, it's an extraordinarily difficult sentence to translate literally from the Greek to the English. Each, if you translate each word literally, you would have to write down what to me and to you, which, of course, you can't. So these phrases like, what do you have to do with me? And when you think about it, if you love the Bible, you think, why have I heard that before? I've heard that before. What do you have to do with me? Where have you heard that? Well, you've heard it two or three times in the Gospels, and perhaps the most remarkable one is when Jesus crosses the lake and out comes legion, full of demons. You know, I am many. You know, here he is. He's coming out full of demons. And he says to Jesus, what have you got to do with me? It's like you are an absolutely other. <clears throat> what, what, what have you got in my world, your world and my world? What have we in common? What's, what's the deal? I mean, that's, that's, the way he, that's the way he speaks to Jesus. And that's the same phrase, and that's exactly the same phrase that comes into this wedding and in this conversation with his mother. What? What are you going to do with me? And what's, what's going on here? A strange way to speak to your mother. I don't think he would have sounded like Legion. You're like, you're like, you're like, but I, it's a strange thing to say. So why is he saying? Why, why does this happen? What's going on? I believe it's very important. And so we just go into it a little. I, I believe what's happening was that Jesus has come to this wedding. It's a social occasion. You know, there are weddings, and I can think of one on my horizon. There's a social occasion. Right? There's a wedding we'll be at. You, you know, you, you have to be there. It's a wedding. It's coming up. It's a social occasion, and uh, Jesus is involved in it in that way. But he's also with his disciples. In other words, his public ministry has begun. He's been baptized, the voice from heaven, the powerful anointing of the Spirit. He's begun his messianic ministry. And this is overlapping. In this wedding, there's an overlap from where he has been socially to where he's going in his new role, this overlapping right here in this wedding. And I want to suggest to you that Mary is talking to him in the way that she's got used to talking to him. Namely, as a son. And I guess when one thinks again of the Gospels, you find Joseph seems to disappear. There's no explanation. He just is not there any longer. Mary's there. Mary's there with, it says at one point, when Jesus is ministering, Mary's there, and his brothers are there. And, and they're saying, oh, yeah, at the back of the crowd, as it were. No mention of Joseph. Like Joseph's gone, and most commentators would suggest Joseph died young. Now, Jesus is in a home where there are other brothers and sisters, it says plainly in the Bible, and there's no father figure at some point. I want to suggest to you that Jesus would have been the perfect oldest son. I'm sure that Mary learned to look to him. He would have been perfect. Imagine he's a perfect child. We know that when at 12 years of age he was lost, or they had gone, the extended family thought he's somewhere in the extended family. On the journey back from Jerusalem, they find he's not. They go back, 
And it says he went and was obedient to them. He was a perfect child. He grew up as a perfect teenager. Should we pause a moment? Think about it. <laughs> perfect teenager. And, and, and he would have lived, he would have been there, I'm sure he would have been there for Mary when she needed him. He would have been kindness personified, thoughtfulness, everything she needed. He would have been there for her. I don't think that's extravagant imagination. And there we are in a wedding. And we're in trouble. And so she turns to him because, well, she's got used to turning to him. And he's very helpful. And he's very kind. And he's very thoughtful. And suddenly she hears, woman, what have I got to do with you? And you're, what is going on? I believe Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, Mary, there's a line in the sand here. You're going to have to relate to me in a new way altogether. You've got to learn that it's not like it used to be. We're in a new relationship now. You have to know me in a new kind of way. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says this, We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter, his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Let's read that last section again. Declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Now, why am I staying with this? Well, I think it's relevant to us in how we know him as our shepherd. It's very possible to think of our shepherd, and, and in a sense, well, I'm at the center of this world. It's my world, and I've got a shepherd. It's so good to have a shepherd. He's so helpful. You know, he's like a genie. You just kind of love Jesus. Uh, parking spot, please. Thank you, Jesus. He's uh, just great. He's there for you. He's there for you. And here's this encounter, this kind of... And Mary's perhaps used to him saying, oh, no, I'll go and get a few skins of wine, don't worry. I'll look after it. Don't fret about it. I'll look after it. And suddenly it's not like that. Suddenly, whoa, it's this... He's not... He's, you have to relate to him differently. He's now the messianic shepherd. He's now the Lord of glory. He's now the one in charge. He's bringing in the kingdom. He's establishing what the kingdom's all about. Bringing people back into a right relationship with God through this awesome mediator. But he's not just my shepherd in my world. He's not just keeping me as I was and looking after stuff for me. So, you know, I've got my career, I've got my family, I've got my vacation plan, and I've got a shepherd to accept. No, he's come <laughs> different deal altogether. He's come. And he's not to be addressed in that kind of way anymore. He's not there for me. You see, some people leave the church and you go after them and you say, well, why did you leave? And they say things like this, he never did anything for me. You thought that was the deal? He was just going to do things for you? So you're saying, Terry, didn't he care about this wedding then? Is he going to let them just rot? Is he going to let shame come their lives? This is going to be the wedding that's always remembered. Apparently they knew how to party. The commentators say that these parties would take seven days. Imagine a wedding party that lasts seven days. Well, this is a big event. And it's the one you always remember. I guess, ah, the shame of it. They ran out of life. Doesn't he care? Yeah, he does care. And he solves it. That's why it's in the story. He solves it. But he solves it his way. He solves it his way. What do I mean? He solves it by taking... Over. He doesn't just rush off and get a few wineskins. He's bringing in the kingdom. And so he gives instructions that are specific, unreasonable, and require faith and obedience. He's ushering in a kingdom to do with him and his word. He's ushering in a new way of relating, a way where what he says matters. What he says, however unreasonable, is the way we're going to get this situation dealt with. 
These instructions are specific. They are totally unreasonable. And they require a certain attitude to Jesus. A certain giving up of what you think makes sense. A certain relinquishing of your power to choose. Of you to be in charge. He's now in charge. He's usher- it's a sign. He's ushering in something that will lead to abundance, but it has to be done his way. And if we don't do it his way, we miss the sign. We miss the kingdom. Jesus came as a rock. You could fall on this rock and be broken. He was a rock of offense. You could stumble on him. But if you yielded to him, you'll end into another kingdom, another world of gallons of wine. But you have to do it his way. The specific. Go and fill the water pots. Not what you expected. It's like, it's like you come and say, Lord, we're in trouble. We've got no peace. We're in, we're in trouble. We're in difficulty. The, the spark was gone. Maybe it can be in your marriage. It can get very scary. The wine used to be so heady. Our marriage was such fun. The sky is just, no one knows, but we're just about hanging in there. No one knows. It's under the surface, but boy, it is getting bad. We're losing. There's no wine about it. It's just humdrum and boring and hard. Lord Jesus. Now he steps in and solves their running out factor. He saves this marriage. He saves this wedding. He can save your marriage. He can save your wedding. He can save all sorts of things if we will listen. Now it's unreasonable. You say, Lord, it's like people might come to church and they sing and they say, Can I have peace? Can I have peace? You say, Yeah. Um, see, Jesus said, They said, We've run out of wine. He says, get the water pots. No, no, listen, Jesus. Uh, listen, listen. No problem with the water. It's wine we're out of. <laughs> we're out of wine. Listen, Lord, it's wine. Okay. Fill the water pots. No, no, Jesus, you're not listening. It's nothing to do with the water. It's the place to do with the wine. <laughs> listen carefully, Jesus. It's the wine. The wine is the problem. Okay. Fill the water pots. <laughs> it's like people come to church and say, you people seem to have peace. How can you got peace? We'd like to speak to you about the cross of Jesus. Oh, come on. 2,000 years ago. Forget, forget. Now, how do you people, have you found some clue to peace? How come you, you, you seem to be together? I mean, what's your deal? We want to talk to you about, oh, come on, Jesus? 2,000 years ago, Romans, Israel, forget it. I'm not interested. Now, you have to listen. You have to listen. Your problems are bigger than you understood. You do need to know about a cross. You do need to know the kind of wonderful stuff we've just been singing. You do need to know that. You will not get peace. We can't give you peace. We can bring a cross to you. And so, you see, Jesus is saying something you never expect him to say. Fill the water pots. You, you could say, Jesus, well, I don't understand. Fill the water pots. I don't understand. Which part of fill the water pots don't you understand? <laughs> Which part going on? That's very clear. And these disciples, they are shepherded by Jesus to learn to do things like that. Do whatever he says. Now, didn't Mary do brilliantly? I mean, Mary, I think people have left the church on less than that. Woman, what have I got to do with you? You're speaking to me like that, aren't you? <laughs> Jesus, I mean, Mary does brilliantly. Mary bounces back and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, that's not the whole gospel, but that's a pretty big part. That's not the whole gospel, but that is so key to a right relationship with him. Whatever he says to you. See, that's, that's not the way it has been for many of us. And beloved, even sometimes us who are full-time in ministry, I remember when I was in grammar school, a guy said to me, so I'm going into politics. He said, if I can't get into politics, I'll go into the church. <laughs> like I can, I'll have a voice somewhere. We can get down the track a bit, and we've never learned whatever he says to you. Or we, we, we begin there, 
And we say, yes, Lord, you know, we maybe made that step. Maybe some big event. Maybe when you were baptized. Maybe when you made some, some major step. You say, Lord, I'll give you my life. And, and we do. We make that presentation. We say, Lord, you be in charge now. And then circumstances come along. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> he's, he's like he's driving. Uh, and you say, you say, Lord, I'll just take the wheel now for a bit. I, I'm not sure you want this, but I sure do want this. I'll take the wheel back. I'm going to be in charge now. And it used to be whatever you say, but the way you were going looked very costly indeed. I could miss that. I could miss her. I could miss him. I could miss that whole thing. I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to grab the wheel back. And if we do that enough times, actually, it becomes our will. And Jesus is coming in the car with you. But you're driving. And you forget what it sounds like to hear him. This word is a kind of distant voice now. and It's not intimate anymore. Because really you've got the wheel. And this is saying, give me the wheel. Saying, whatever I say, do it. Because that is the kingdom of God. That's the deal. That's what it's about. We were going this way and the gospel is turn around. Repent. Turn from your idols, and serve the living God and wait for his son in heaven. It's a turnaround. It's letting him run things. Is that how it is for you? To being in ministry, you have all sorts of very costly choices. But sometimes you think, well, if I do that, mm, they won't like that. If I do that, I could risk my job. If I do that, I could risk my house. Forget it. I'm not going there. And so we can be in ministry, but not really following the shepherd. We can sometimes be telling other people to follow the shepherd, but we're not, because it's too, cost- it's too costly. It's too dangerous. And here, we find that Jesus is taking over and he's bringing the answer because he's teaching people to live by his word. The word of the Lord. That's our life, beloved. That's the deal. I was preaching once in the, in the a Sovereign Grace conference in the USA. And I finished preaching. A man called C.J. Mahaney, who led that movement, he was, uh, he was there in the crowd, and people seemed pretty happy. And he came to the mic. He said, how many of you have been blessed through what Terry said? I was kind of cheer, American style. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, he said, you're all deceived. I thought, wow. What what have I said? I thought, I was really shocked. What have I said? And then he went on, thankfully, to say, it says in the Bible, not blessed are those who hear, but if you hear, blessed are you if you do. He said, you think you've all been blessed, and all you've done is heard. I thought, oh, thank you. (laughs) And that is the deal, isn't it? It's doing what he says. It's doing what he tells us to do. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we can can, can say it's not fair, it's not safe. It's dangerous. And so we're all cautious. And we we don't do the radical thing. We don't do the obedient thing. Because we're just being closer instead. And we've been moral and we're doing the best we can. But we're not doing necessarily what he tells us to do. And this story, this first sign, is when they did when they let him take over, when they let him run the wedding, when they let him solve the problem, there's gallons of life. He takes control. He overwhelms them with provision. But it's, this is the way it happens. And I think honestly, the root people say, What's the root of sin? And the root of sin, people think, is selfishness. But I don't actually think that's a biblical reply. I think the root of sin is an evil heart of unbelief. That's what the Bible talks about. An evil heart of unbelief. I think lots of unselfish people around. Presumably Mahatma Gandhi was pretty unselfish. I don't think unselfish. I think selfishness 
The key is unbelief, because I believe that's, that's what happened at the fall. The fall, Satan came and said, listen, you can't trust him, effectively. Now, eat what I'll give you, and you'll be as, you'll be as good. You can choose what's right and wrong. You don't have to trust him telling you what's right and wrong. You can be as God. You can choose between good and evil. It's your deal. It becomes your deal. You, you don't have to trust him. You don't have to believe him. I'm telling you, he's lying to you. I'm offering you something better. And so they, they didn't believe God. That was their problem. That's the root of sin. And when God came to Abraham, he said to Abraham, it's an amazing thing. You will be the father of a multitude. And he believed God. He believed God. And now we've got a reversal. Now we've got to start again. Now he's like Adam's. Abraham's the new Adam. And that will believe God. And that faith is tested. It's tested and tested. And then he says, through you, bless all the families of the earth. We become children of Abraham. Men who believe. Believe. And that's that we call believers in the Bible. And belief has to overcome. Things you think, well, that's not comfortable, I don't know about that. And, and so too often we say, yeah, well, I know that, but I'm not going that way, I'm sorry. And effectively saying, I don't believe that will work out. I don't believe if I did that, it would be okay. And I feel, okay, you say that, but I'm not sure that's a good idea. And so we get used to not believing. God wants us to believe. God wants us, especially in leadership, to believe. But faith characterizes us, and we have the sense to believe that, to rise up a believing community. So Paul says, I've received grace and apostleship. Beginning of Romans 1, I've received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. The obedience that comes from faith. Now, you could say, well, God ought to be obeyed anyway, you Gentiles. And we Jews have been trying to do it for centuries. Now you start obeying. He could have gone out and just said, hey, obey God, obey God. He's the creator. Obey him, obey him. He said, no, I want to go among the Gentiles to bring about the obedience, yes, that comes from faith. That you obey because you believe. You can trust this shepherd. But even when it was crazy, you can trust this shepherd. That's what the Bible's full of. Moses, you can go through the Red Sea. Joshua, you can go through Jordan. Jericho's walls were full. It's full of people doing things that are ridiculous. Because they believe God. They believe God. We can have that building. We can afford to buy that warehouse and make it a church. We can do these things. Oh, we couldn't possibly do that. Oh, we can't do that. Never done it before. We settled for that. Some of you have been called to leadership. Leadership. Let me begin to step into faith. And people begin to believe this. And they, and they obey because they believe. They don't obey because they have to. See, what can happen is you become a Christian, then you have to obey. But it's not through faith. So when I was a backslidden, I was a, I was a brilliant backslidden Christian. For four years, I was a backslidden Christian, horrible Christian. So I'm in church on Sunday, I'm doing all sorts of atrocious stuff the rest of the time. And then sometimes I'd have a conscience thing. And so they'd say at work, we're having a big party on Friday night, Terry, are you coming? Uh, no, I don't think so. There'll be loads of booze there, there'll be lots of girls there, you coming? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, no. So, you know, on the Monday, you go back into work, you say, what was the party like? Oh, fine. Fantastic with the books, with the girls. Oh, you'd have loved it. Why don't you come? No, I'm a Christian. We're not supposed to. Why don't you become a Christian? Then you won't be allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the that's the deal. We're we're Christians. We're not allowed to. (laughs) Or is it the obedience that comes from faith? That we really believe all these great things we've been singing. God is for me. Nothing could enrich me more than the love of Christ, than his providential purpose. Nothing could compete. Nothing. I don't have to get drunk. I don't have to do all the stuff that appealed to me in my late teens and early twenties. I don't have to do it. Not because you're not allowed to. 
You see, conversations I'm with, you mean you're going to be a Christian, you mean you're only going to have sex with one woman for the rest of your life? Is that it? I mean, you cannot imagine anything more boring. Well, we're not allowed to, we're stuck there. Or do we think that God knows precisely what he's talking about? He really does. He invented the explosive joys of sex and knew the best setting for it. And he knew what was best. Not now, we're not allowed to. Or we'll give it. You mean, you mean, I have to give a tithe? Before or after tax? I don't actually believe that under law, but I believe the Bible wants, it makes it very clear, God wants you to be very generous. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Hmm, maybe. <laughs> I think it's pretty good receiving myself. <laughs> faith. The obedience that comes from faith. Paul says, I'm going out among the nations to produce communities who live completely different. They're not just a bit morally better, but they really They believe God. They believe God. They, they trust God. When He says things to do, we do them. We say, Lord, you tell us, we do it. We've been trying, Lord, just show me. We do it. Is that how it is for us? I mentioned in my little testimony, QA last night, that I know I got saved. And a pretty different message. It was very much, I was asked Jesus in, like he's the genie. You know, I'm in problems. Don't get me out of this. Please get me out of this. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Went back to my old life. Until a scary day. When God said, I want your life. I want it now. And it's now or never. I mean, frighten the life out of you. As far as I knew how, a total backslidden man... I gave myself to God. As far as I knew, I was a terrible backslider. Drunk often. Real mess. In church on Sundays, I just said, okay, you had the whole lot. Lost everything. I lost a fiancé, I lost friends, I lost everything. But I could dance on that burial ground now. I didn't know you had an adventure for me. I didn't know you had I was clinging to trash. And there can come moments in our life. We say, well, that's too costly that way. And we, we miss the grace of God. We miss the miracle. We miss what God wants to do. Because we think we know better. And we don't trust him. And sometimes it's very clear to us what we're meant to do. It's very clear to us. But we think, if I go that way. It's like the Pharisees came to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, at one point, asking him, well, by what authority do you do this? And he said, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? As they said to themselves, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you respond to it? If we say it's from men, the crowd will say, hey, he was a prophet of God. If we say this, if we say this, so they replied, we don't know. They were cheating. They knew. But to live with the ramifications of what they knew were too costly. And Jesus is inviting us. Let me be in charge. I don't want to crush you. I know when I used to go to the missionary weeks that I mentioned at uh, the Baptist church I used to attend, I sometimes went to the missionary, and on the Friday night was the, the, was the big missionary appeal. It was terrifying. They get these mighty preachers. And all the young people used to go to the missionary week and you kind of cling to the pew when the guy is speaking. And, and at the end, did you get the call? No, I didn't. No, nor did I. <laughs> I thought, if I, go, if I respond to the call, God's going to put me in some African jungle and crush me to death. <laughs> if I let him make the choices, he'll kill me. And I don't, I'm too scared to do that. So you'd hang on to the pew. For me, I, remember, I was terribly backslidden still. I was 18. And Stephen Olford, no less, 
preached, I preached this incredible sermon. I mean, it was breathtaking. Then, oh, stand, now we're going to sing. Just as I am, young, strong, and free. You know, people sort of flesh that song. Just as I am, young, strong, and free, to be the best that I can be. Oh, man of God, I can't. It was a missionary song that we used to sing. And, uh, you know, sing, singing, come if you'll go. And there's hundreds of church packed, like six or seven hundred people in the church, and Stephen Alford preached his guts out. And, and you'll think, and, and you come. And all these lovely girls go forward. <laughs> and he says, Where are my men? And it's scary to let God make the choices. But beloved, it gives gallons of wine. And the best wine you've ever tasted. The best wine you've ever tasted. And God's inviting us, even in ministry. But if I go that way, I could lose my job. If I say that, I'll offend the deacons. If I say that, the treasurer will say, what about our house? I can't go that way. And so we preach morality. We keep safe. And we're not seeing the glorious Christ. So it's not just the people in our ranks. It's, it's Jesus really shepherding your life. Or do we just touch our hat to him? He wants to take over. He wants to bless us. But he's ushering in a new kingdom. He's not there just to help out weddings. He's not even there just to help out Mary, in spite of what the Roman Catholics might say. He's there. He's not going to be manipulated. And C.S. Lewis says, he's not the tame liar. He roars. And we do what he tells us to do. And if we do, we're amazed, amazed at what he does for us. So let's know him, beloved, as our true, supernatural, wonderful shepherd. He's well qualified to care for us if we're in his control. He doesn't just jump and give us the parking space and praise God, he amazingly does, and pray that prayer as much as anybody else. He's amazing what he does for us. But he wants to be in charge. So when he says, do such and such, we do it. We don't always understand why. We used to run study Bible week. God said quite plainly to us, time to stop. Time to stop. We ran it for 11 years. The offering night used to take a million pounds at the end. A million pounds. He said, but how are we going to make things? God says, well, we stop. A million pounds away. God kept multiplying and blessing. We don't lie at him. We say, yes, we let God make the choices. He let him make the call, and he will guide, he will lead. Let's just pressure Let's draw near to God, each of us. Maybe, maybe you're living on the edge of something. Maybe like these. Everyone can just see the party, the party looks fun. Everybody's dancing and singing and happy. But just under the surface. You're living with a crisis. I don't think we're going to make it. What's private will soon be public. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. <coughs> and this word gets to Jesus. Lord, they're in trouble. And beloved, he completely solves it. He completely solves it. It will be the wedding we're still talking about now, 2,000 years later. Not the wedding that for a few years people spoke about the shame of it, but speaking about the amazing wonder of it thousands of years later, because Jesus was obeyed in a way that made no sense whatever. But he was in charge. And they obeyed through faith. They said, if God, God knows. I, I really trust him. The obedience that comes from faith. Not from unbelief. 
Not from, well, you have to do it because you're a Christian. Otherwise, we teach people morality while others are watching. The tragedy that's in our ranks. Guys secretly captivated by pornography on their laptops when no one's looking. If anyone comes in, that laptop goes shut pretty quick. It's not an obedience of faith. It's, it's not faith. It's like, well, I'm not allowed, I'm not supposed to. I'm not, it's not, there hasn't been that explosion of joy. God knows best. I believe him. I really believe he knows what he's talking about. The church is meant to be happy in obedience, not reluctant, <coughs> confident in their shepherds, that he knows the way he's leading his flock. The flock of God should look stark contrast to those around us. We've got another reason <coughs> detra, we've got another focus, another person who calls the tune. If you Blessed are those who hear my words and do them. They're like a man who builds his house on a rock. Father, we just come to you. Lord, we do thank you so much that you've ever invaded our lives. Lord, we just praise you so much. We do pray that you will win our joyful obedience, even our costly obedience, even when it looks like real danger to, to obey you that we might find you, the faithful one, and prove you. Holy Spirit, just invade our hearts with truth, win our affection, win our obedience, win our confidence in you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.